The scripture reading is also found in your bulletin, and we'll be reading 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 17, and then 26 and 27. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your own house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live? And shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live? And as you as your soul lives, I do not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to, his, to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again. Um, It's good to be with you again and to open up the scriptures and to study them alongside. Uh, If you're new to North Cross, thanks for being here. Thanks for being online with us. Um, As I said before, we'd love to get to know you so you can stay after if you're here. Physically, if you're virtually, um, you can look to those emails and let us know you're there. 
Um, if you're here again, we're really glad to be a part of a family together where we get to see each other weekly, which is awesome. So this spring and summer for our sermon series, we're following along the life of David as told in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapters 6 through 10, David has become more and more royally settled. So this kind of every week and it kind of keeps growing. His throne, his promise for eternity, uh, his palace of stone and cedar is next door to the ark of, of the Lord, um, the dwelling place here on earth. And he's successfully kept a promise 20 years in the making to his friend Jonathan to care for his son Mephibosheth. And then, oh yeah, by the way, all of his enemies inside of Israel and outside of Israel are basically defeated. They're in their death throes. And so verse one of our passage this morning in chapter 11 reminds us that King David has made it. He doesn't even have to go out and fight anymore. He doesn't need to prove himself anymore. And so the big question becomes, who is David really? What is David like with his armor off? What does David do after he's done with all the things that he needs to do? He's supposed to do. And of course, the question turns to us, and it must be asked, who are you? Who am I really? Who are we really? What do we want after the pandemic and its restrictions have begun to lift? What do we do where do our hearts and minds turn when we feel secure or superior? When we're by ourselves and we don't have the next thing to get done. Our passage today, 2 Samuel chapter 11, drives us back to these questions about ourselves. And it suggests that these times of rest that we're given can actually be the times when we feel the most restless. When we're bored or we're angry or we're just craving some relief. And so before we step into David's historical example of our restlessness, would you pray with me and for our time together in God's words to us this morning? Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your words. Thank you that we get to attend to them. Um, thank you for your spirit that works through them. And I pray, Jesus, that you'd meet us where we are. Um, where we are hearing passages like that, where, we were this, where we've been this morning, Jesus, would you pursue us in your love? Would you come and find us where we're hiding and afraid? Would you come and find us where we're out in the open and excited? Would you come and find us in those middle places too, um, Lord? And um, we pray that you'd be made much of in the next several minutes that we would see you um, more clearly, that the eyes of our hearts uh, would lift you up, Jesus, and you'd be more believable and beautiful to us. Would you help us to treasure you above all things? Would you remind us of who you are and remind us of who we are and how you meet us as we are? We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. I'm just gonna go ahead and kick this wire out of the way. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Otherwise, I'll trip and that'll be more embarrassing. Okay, so the real danger with passages like this one, there's this real danger that it's not just a story that we're familiar with, the David and Bathsheba story. That, that's a, that's, that, that has a little danger to it, whether you grew up in the church or maybe you're like me and you didn't really come to the church until much later in life. 
Um, this is a relatively familiar story. You've probably heard the story of King David and Bathsheba before. The danger is even more so that we're going to have to talk about things like sex and sin and grace. And there's a very good chance you will not actually hear what the Bible is really saying. We won't actually get what God means by these ideas in our very lives. And I'm gonna turn to a writer named Francis Spufford to explain that. He wrote a book and then also an article and in which he writes that when many of us hear words like sin in the 21st century, in America in particular, uh, whether we consider ourselves Christian or not so much, when we hear the term sin, we hear what the grocery stores and the malls and the online shopping options and advertisements have taught us to hear. Sin means yummy transgressions. <laughs> it means literally the word sin is a brand name for chocolate candies and ice cream. An adjective that describes red lingerie and sugary sweet cocktails. This is not to mention the unfortunate label of sin taxes on things like cigarettes and beer. All these items combine in our cultural imagination to make sin seem like something, an indulgence or a bodily satisfaction or an enjoyable pleasure. And this means when we read passages like 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I say things like David sinned by having sex with Bathsheba, we can picture God as this old fuddy-duddy with his arms crossed in heaven, harumphing over kids today and the fact that you're having some fun. That's exactly what God is not like, by the way. But this picture or this idea behind this picture in our minds is cultural. Culturally, sin means committing an offense against good nutrition. Sin culturally means committing an offense against boring old tastes. The Bible or God, therefore, can seem like a cosmic killjoy, an eternal wet blanket, and body-hating. Therefore, let me suggest a different definition for sin. This definition also comes from Francis Buffer, and I think it's very biblical, but please know that I'm changing out an R-rated word for two PG words, <laughs> okay? Sin is, in Spufford's words, sin is the human propensity to mess things up or to screw things up. That is, sin is our active inclination to break stuff, including moods and promises and relationships that we care about. Sin is our active propensity to, to, to break well-being, our well-being, other people's well-being, as well as material objects. In other words, we are, we are uniquely equipped to screw things up for ourselves and for others, and the perfectionism that we all strive for is our reaction to our human condition. And the restlessness that we feel during our down times is one of sin's symptoms that we have. And so when we think about the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we discuss David's sin, I would like us to focus on David and our propensity to screw things up whether the things in our own lives or the things in the lives around us. But I also want us at the same time to hear the good news, the gospel news that this passage points to. If our sin breaks us apart, and if it breaks apart other human beings, Jesus' grace is the glue that puts broken things and broken people back together again. So 2 Samuel chapter 11 shows us a profound truth. Like David, we will all have this tendency to screw things up. But Jesus has taken up our failures into his success. 
Our passage describes our sin and Jesus' grace in the form of a story that has sort of three developments, main developments. And you can see these developments in the outline that's been provided for you, projected behind me or in your electronic bulletin. So the first development, verses one through five, we see the expected human sin. Second, verses six through 17, we see the automatic cover-up. And then third, in verses 26 through 27, we see God's shocking grace. So we're gonna look at sin, the cover-up, and grace in that order. That's where we're going. So let's begin with verses one through five and 2 Samuel 11's description of the expected, expected human sin. So if you look there with me, as I said earlier, verse one really sets the tone of this scene very well. David has opted out when all of those around him, other kings, Joab, all of Israel, are going out to battle. And we're not exactly sure what allows or even drives David to stay home and treat himself to a treat yourself spring in his, in his royal pajamas. It always gets a couple of laughs from people who've seen Parks and Rec, but it's okay. Um, but the implication is that David has that luxury and perhaps he shouldn't have taken that luxury. That's the implication of this passage. But regardless, verse two tells us that David is sleeping late or at least taking a long afternoon nap, nothing wrong with that. And then he awakes with nothing pressing to do and so he decides to go up on the rooftop. And then and there, David sees a naked, beautiful woman and there and then, David's restless boredom turns into a possessive lust. Verses three and four tell us that David saw what he wanted and then what he wanted right away, and he made the means possible. He did what he too could do to possess it. It didn't matter that Bathsheba was the wife and daughter of two of his most loyal soldiers, his valiant men, who fought alongside David, fought for David in the wilderness, when so many people wouldn't even stand next to David. But each of us can kind of see ourselves there, can't we? in a moment of deep but poorly, poorly directed desire, when we attempt to kind of a do you see me kind of affection, we try to get a kind of do you get me kind of attention, but with little personal cost and vulnerability as possible. There we are scrolling through a website or a social media profile or at a beach and an image comes to our eye and we just double down. We scroll back with our eyes and we let our emotions at a heart level loose. Just a little bit or maybe a lot. Or we're typing and clicking for more down the rabbit hole. Or maybe for us, this is using our words and our moods to manipulate friends and family to need me more than anyone else. Or it looks like pouring in another drink or cupping another several handfuls or another bag of carbs late at night when everyone else is asleep and you think nobody's gonna notice. The way Monday through Friday can make us feel, the whirring treadmill that's on an incline, that ever-filling email inbox and the impossible to please parent or boss, the whiny child. And we begin to think, I deserve to do whatever I want. I need this. After all, it's just a little pleasure, a small satisfaction for all the hard work I do. And here's the key, no one has to know. But this passage is at pains to tell us that these kind of secret pleasures, these moments where we hit the eject button on life, 
often through sexual escape, these have life-on-life consequences. Our decisions can wound real people, and our decisions can destroy real relationships. For instance, using sex selfishly to possess or manipulate someone to fill up what's empty inside of us, sex like pornography or hooking up or even demeaning married sex, this kind of sex is objectifying. It uses someone we know or someone we don't know, and then it ignores the personal, you know, the spiritual and the emotional and the social parts of that person and just strip minds the physical. It's a trail of tears that are left in the wake. It's a trail of shame and pain and insecurity that lust leaves. It's because it makes three-dimensional people into two-dimensional objects. But notice how Bathsheba is objectified exactly like this in this passage by King David. Bathsheba is silent, not given anything but two Hebrew words. In verse 5, pregnant. And the narrator's silence about Bathsheba's consent or even attraction to David is damning. But please remember just who's doing this to Bathsheba and to Uriah and to all of Israel. This is David. David, the man who has a heart after the Lord. The man who refused to to kill King Saul in self-defense time and time again. This is David, whose first public acts were to elevate the worship of God. This is David, who invited a lame in both feet, political public enemy, to eat at his table as his son always. David is the person who won the character award at every graduation you went to growing up. David is the guy everybody likes. They don't just talk nice about him when he's not there. We actually want him there with us. He's making good. He's a real family man with a touch of timely piety and fun. He's the kind of guy you find smiling at you over a well-worn Bible or over a steaming vat at the soup kitchen when you go there to serve or when you go there to be served. That's David. And guess what? That David, this David, committed adultery and he broke four of the other ten big commandments. (laughs) Here are two takeaways for us. First, everyone is capable of any sin, no matter how dark or dumb or dirty the sin. Anyone can do anything, no matter who they are, no matter who we are. Let me just assure you, David was a better man than anyone in this room. Anyone online, okay? He knew God more. He followed God closer. He loved being with God more than any of us. Just read the Psalms he wrote. If this is true, it tells us that no one is too good to be beyond the need for Jesus. Some of us elevate certain people mentors, parents, people who work in churches, people who work on the mission field. And let me just say this, for the public record, I'm a pastor. I'm professionally religious. I likely read the Bible and pray more than you because I get paid to do it. 
But do you know what? I fail. And if I haven't failed you yet, I'm going to fail you soon. And badly. If you've been around me, you've actually gotten to know me, I've almost certainly hurt you. And I'm really sorry. I've used you. And I'm really sorry. But here's the thing. You've almost certainly done that to me. And what I mean is this. My sins needed nailing to Jesus to the cross 2,000 years ago, just as much as your sins did. Second application. Everyone is capable of doing every, any sin. No matter who you are, no matter who they are, everyone is capable of any sin, no matter how well you think or they think they're doing. Just let me assure you, David was doing a lot better than you and I are doing at that moment. He spent decades in the worst of conditions. He resisted temptations we can't even imagine. And then he spent his peace and his prosperity and his power loving God and loving others at great personal cost in concrete, tangible, excessive ways he spent his time and his energy and his money in amounts that we can't even comprehend on love. And so we all need to own that we are never over our ability to do any sin. So stop talking. We need to stop talking about sin as if it were a past tense problem. And you and I need Jesus. And we need Jesus even more when we think we need him less. We need Jesus even more, especially when we think we need him less. And because this is where Jesus was at the beginning, sorry, this is where David was at the beginning of chapter 11. He was full, chock full of his own self-satisfaction. And this truth leads us to verses 6 through 17, our second main point. We should expect sin from anyone at any time. Because when we don't expect or acknowledge sin, it automatically leads us to do a cover-up, a sin cover-up, or it leads them to do a sin cover-up. You see, verse 5 introduces David to just one of his sin's consequences, a pregnancy that will, will split up and divide two different families. But instead of owning that he has just wrecked Bathsheba and his, relation, and his relationship with Uriah and her relationship with Uriah and Uriah for that matter, David has wrecked his own married life. He doesn't own that. He doesn't own the fact that he's wrecked his children's life. Instead of publicly confessing that his sin as a sin to Uriah, to Bathsheba, to his own family, to God, verses, 16, verses 6 through 17 show David hiding. He's hiding his sin from public view, and he's just in damage control mode. Instead of telling a friend about our addiction, or perhaps getting a filter, or even better, a support group, we clear the internet browsing history. We hide the receipts. We stare at the mirror, and we make promises we can't keep. This is the last time. Instead of apologizing to our spouse about last night, or to our friend about yesterday, we get up extra early and we try to do everything on the house list. Or we make someone, we do everything we can to make that somebody happy. 
the person that we want the respect and love from. We do this because like David, we think, I've got this under control. I can and I will keep this part of me safe from other people, especially the other people that I want to like and respect me. Like us on the day after, whatever that failure is, David develops this elaborate plan to get back into control, to contain the messy consequences of his adultery. First, verses eight through nine, David orders Uriah home so he can have him lay with his own wife. But in a bit of telling irony, Uriah won't treat his downtime for selfish indulgence. Slowly losing control, David's desire for relief turns into rage. In verse 10, we can start to see it. David tries to force Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba by getting him drunk in verses 10 and 12 and 13. But when these two plots fail, David's anger gets murderous. In verses 14 through 17, King David gives his commander, Joab, orders to have the Ammonites kill Uriah. And then he has the nerve to give that death order to the ever-loyal Uriah in secrecy to hand his own death warrant over to Joab. Here's the progression of sin. Looking for relief. Objectification of lust. Using one's leverage to control someone. To rage. To murder. This sequence works just like a snowball, right? It starts small and you can cup it in the palm of your hands, but soon it rolls downhill and it picks up mass and speed until it's too heavy for your two hands to lift. And until there is a sin avalanche that gets so many other people caught up in its thunder. But what if, what if instead of covering up our sin, instead of covering up its consequences, what if we just admitted it? First confessing it to ourselves and to God, and then going to the trouble of owning it to those people that we hurt. Augustine of Hippo lived and died practicing this exact truth. So much so that he gives us this really beautiful image. This this famous bishop of the early church commissioned somebody to paint the ceiling above his deathbed with the most penitent psalms he could think of and the most graphic descriptions of sin. And he wanted to see those. He wanted that right there because he wanted, before he died, his last words to be words of confession. Of his, what he calls, blessed sin. Felix culpa. Blessed sin. You see, according to Eugene Peterson, Augustine was exercising a lively joy in what God does best. Actually forgiving sins. Graciously forgiving sins and gloriously saving sinners. Augustine understood that honesty and deep acknowledgement of our sins leads us to focus on our forgiveness and most importantly, Jesus's glorious goodness. The Jesus's glorious goodness that we see there on the cross. Jesus's glorious goodness that he says, I'm in the midst of sinful screw ups, knee deep in the mess with you. And this is why we don't have to formulate three-step plans to get ourselves out of trouble and failure over and over again. It's a relationship. There Jesus is caring for us, giving us the affection and attention and intimacy we so desperately want. 
and can't quite get from the internet and can't quite get from chemicals and can't quite get from carbohydrates and can't quite get from other people around us. And we miss all of this Jesus if we deny our sins or we hide from our sins. Or in the words of the writer Flannery O'Connor, there can become in us a deep, black, wordless conviction that the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. And really, this is what the last part of our passage is saying in verses 26 and 27. You see, 2 Samuel 11 is telling us, don't be shocked that people sin, that you sin, and that there's a cover-up routine that we all go into. It's telling us to be shocked at God's grace. That's always unexpected. It's always unexpected at a heart level to see Jesus on his hands and his knees scooping sin-shattered people and gluing us back together again with his grace. And that's our third and final point. And look, if there was not this last sentence of verse 27, we would have a totally different conclusion in this passage. We'd think, well, after all, everything seemed to work out for David, right? No harm, no foul, all's well that ends well. You know, maybe he did some wrong things, but he got the girl, and he got the son, even. But then there's that last line. But the thing David did, the the thing David had done, displeased the Lord. It's good. It's a good thing that stealing another man's wife, then killing him and some other innocent soldiers in the process, it's good that that's displeasing to the Lord. Do you know why that is? Imagine if God thought that was fine behavior. Who would want a God who just turned a blind eye or just sort of shrugged? Justice would just be the advantage of the stronger. It would be like that game you play as a kid, King of the Hill. It's even better that God cares enough to do something about what David has done. And this is what the abrupt ending of our passage is pointing us towards, right? Verses 27 looks ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 12, where God confronts David. And he confronts him not to shame him, but to change him. God wants David and he wants us to see that we need Jesus, that we need him way more than any pleasure with Bathsheba and any more control over that Uriah in our life. Then looking even further down the tunnel of history, well past David, we see that God doesn't throw away messy people. He doesn't dismiss people who screw up and have messy relationships. In fact, God chooses to utilize those very people and those very sins to carry forward the healing presence of Jesus. God takes the sinful, shattered union between David and Bathsheba And he gives the world the wisdom of Solomon, their child, and the Savior, Jesus Christ, their descendant. You see, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, David and the wife of Uriah are named as the parents of Solomon and as the direct ancestor of Jesus Christ. Do we get this and what this means? (laughs) God chose to make David sin with Bathsheba an essential part of the plan that gave the world rescue, a rescuer to humankind. If God can use murder and adultery to produce Jesus Christ and salvation, 
God can take our human tendency to screw things up and screw people up, and he can make those failures the very stage and stepping stones to his glorious success. Here's what this means. I'm going to try to get real practical. Here's what this means, and here's frankly what it does not mean. Here's what God's grace means and what it does not mean. When I was a young Christian in college, um, I heard a Christian dating talk I'll never forget. The speaker talked about how we rush to intimacy and, and how we misuse people and ourselves, and so we physically and emotionally misuse somebody. And as many of you have felt firsthand, and I've felt firsthand, it wounds us and it wounds other people. And to make his point, the speaker took out a paper heart, like just a cut paper heart, and a pair of hole punchers, a hole puncher, and he punched several holes into the paper heart every time he made a point of emphasis of what you could do wrong in a relationship. And it was so silent when he did that that you could hear the clack of metal on metal and the tear of paper. And everyone's eyes just followed the paper circles as they fell spinning to the carpet at his feet. Then the speaker said something foolish. He said, and these holes in our hearts caused by sin can never be healed and they will be with us forever. After this comment, he said a bunch of other stuff I don't remember because I was so stuck in that moment with a hole punched heart and the tiny paper circles floating down to the carpet forever. And it's then that I wish I had known the bigger story of King David. That you see Solomon's birth promises something so significant and important. Jesus the healer shows up among the jagged pieces. Even in our worst moments, even when we sin big and we do the thing we promised that we would never, ever, ever do. Even in those moments of bare, naked shame, Jesus can and he will show up. You see, there's no one is too bad to be beyond the reach of Jesus. And do you know what Jesus does to us when he reaches out and shows up? He covers over our nakedness. He holds us in his arms, and do you know what he sings to us? Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And in the meantime, slowly but surely, Jesus bends down to the floor, eases himself down onto his hands and his knees, and he picks up the circular pieces of our heart, and one by one, he gently places them back where they belong. And Jesus presses those things back in place permanently. Or in the words of the writer Jonathan Merritt, I am wounded. I'm wounded. And while I have deep holes in my heart, they are not empty. They are filled with grace. Would you pray with me again? Father, thanks for this passage. Um, thanks for the truth about who we are, as hard as it is to see, but also the truth about who you are and as good as it is to see. Um, as unbelievable as it feels that you would be this kind of God. That we can't wreck your plans. That we can't wreck you, even when we try. 
And Father, thank you that in your mercy and your grace, you stooped down to be with us. Would you remind us of that love before we mess up, when we mess up, after we mess up? Would you remind us of that love with other people? Jesus, you're that good. Help us to believe it. In your name we pray. Amen.